the approximately 100 individuals of whom we have sufficient biblical data to determine only one-third finished well. No matter how old we are, we can concentrate on Christ and be more concerned with accomplishing his purposes and plans than comparing ourselves with younger people. How was the word of God heard by the people when it was first spoken? The time, the place, the political landscape, the struggles. And how does the word of God apply to this time, this place, this political landscape, our struggles? This is Michael Leasley in Context. Understand God's word and apply it to your life. In Context. You're listening to Michael Easley in Context. I am your co-host, Hannah Seymour, and I'm sitting across Michael Easley in the studio. How are you doing today, Dad? I'm doing great. I'm excited about this new series. I know you are. You spent, <laughs> More so than you, maybe. <laughs> no, I am very excited about it, but you spent... I mean, it might it might have been a year trying to convince me that we needed to repurpose these four messages from Howard Hendricks, which we'll talk about more in a minute. And I really resisted it. Yes, you did. <laughs> <laughs> and I listened to them once and twice. And finally, when talking to you, you persuaded me why this matters. So, so tell our listeners, what are we doing and why does this matter? <laughs> 1999, Howard G. Hendricks gave the W.H. Griffith Thomas Lecture Series. It's a prestigious series of lectures. They typically invited scholars from around the world to come. They read manuscripts at these lectures. It wasn't like a homiletics wow. thing. So it was academic, a little bit highbrow, a little bit boring, frankly. And then those four lectures ended up in the quarterly journal that Dallas publishes, Bibliotheca Sacra. And uh, so this was an unusual year because they had not used Dallas Seminary professors for a long time. It's their own school, obviously, mm-hmm. their own mm-hmm. publication. So for Prof to have this invitation was, was quite an honor. Secondly, he's really not a lecturer. He hmm. is far more of a uh, expositor, Bible teacher, mm-hmm. motivator, a brilliant communicator, but not in the vein of an academic publication. So that was interesting. The lectures were very well given, obviously, uh, very well done. But what struck me, Hannah, was he was talking about things that very few people talk about. Mm. And particularly when he gave the presentations, it was about facing retirement, facing your uh, your your elderly years, facing illnesses, facing the last decades, as I would call it. And granted, some of it was time-stamped. Mm-hmm. Some of it you know, won't apply in 2018 and, sure. uh, and on. But there was so much gold in these lectures, I wanted us to filter that out and supplement it. And you finally came along. <laughs> I did come along. Well, you started sharing with me how this was the conversation that you find yourself having at almost every lunch and coffee with anyone that is around your age. Those of us in our 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s face, I wouldn't say it's a dilemma. It's just not discussed. What do you do? 
In your 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, your life is pretty well mapped. Now, yeah. maybe you married later, sure. maybe whatever, you're having kids, you're planning. Once you have children, as you well know, your life becomes raising this child, children in, in their formative years and getting them ready for middle school, for high school, for college. Yep. Then all of a sudden, it's like, oh, I got to think about retirement. What am I going to do next? I got to mm-hmm. pay for college. Before you know it, you're faced with this unusual chapter of your life going, well, I'm either very close to that, quote, retirement, close quote, or I am. What do I do now? Right. And my peer visit their grandchildren and travel Hmm. until health issues knock on the door, until they have to take care of an aging parent, until one of their children goes through a divorce. There's all these things. Some of them are almost predictable, but we don't want to plan them. We don't want to talk Mm. about them. So for me, for your mom and me, it's been an interesting chapter. What are we going to do in our 60s, 70s, 80s? All our mentors are dead or dying. Hmm. So I don't know who to look to. Who do I call when I got a toddler who's teething, a baby who's teething, a toddler who's throwing tantrums, a teenager? I got somebody to call. Right. Whom do we call when we're 60, 70, 80 and we're facing cancer, dementia, Alzheimer's, uh, burying a spouse, burying a child, burying, you know, a dear friend, all your friends are dying, not to be maudlin and dis- uh, depressing, but it, it's a, a common conversation I'm having. We've done so much well. We've done so many right things. What do we do now? So, Dad, this first lecture is a biblical look at aging. Tell us why this even merits our time and attention. Well, number one, let's don't uh, dismiss it because I'm 20, 30, 40. This yeah. is a reality for all of us. Well, as we'll join Prof in this lecture on aging, I want to summarize part of what he says in the lecture. He mentions a number of things that conspire to build a convincing case that studying old age is not nice, but it's absolutely necessary. And he lists a number of factors about human research on the subject that it tends to be devoid of the Bible. A second reason he articulates why we need to address this is the aging population is one of the fastest growing segments in our culture. And the numbers increase as we get in each decade of how many millions of people are living past their 60s and 70s. A third argument he brings is that there is a great resource of spiritual information, of spiritual maturity in this pool of aging adults that, frankly, the church and individuals aren't taking advantage of. Another reason he discusses is what he calls mobility and modernization, meaning that we're moving around. Uh, not only are grandparents moving, but children move because of employment. Mm-hmm. So a lot of mitigating factors are working against us as we face these aging years. So before we jump into the Griffith Thomas Lecture Series, I want to talk about three quick things that are going on outside of this new What Now series. Number one, if you are listening to this prior to May 1st of 2018, we are in the middle of a 60-day match campaign. So that means dollar for dollar, every gift that is contributed to MJE Broadcasting Incorporated will be matched dollar for dollar up to $100,000. So we have the opportunity to fundraise up to $200,000, which is incredible. If this is the first time you're hearing about it, head to our website, michaelincontext.com. You can read more about it, but you can donate and have your gift match dollar for dollar from now up until May 1 of 2018. 
2nd. When this episode airs, it will have been just a few weeks since the March for Our Lives event that happened all across the country. And if you missed our episode on gun control, Michael Easley and Michael Mann have about an hour-long conversation, but it is fascinating. I learned so much. My husband listened to it, learned so much. We've shared it with several of our friends talking about, is there a better middle ground? We have take away all the guns to, you know, pro NRA, whatever. Is there a middle ground, a conversation about how to be keeping our children safe, ourselves safe, and how do we respond as believers in this crazy, hot topic conversation? And then the third thing, a completely shameless plug, I mentioned actually in that gun control episode, I have a book coming out on April 3rd, and we are going to have an episode about that later on in this season, but it is called The College Girl Survival Guide, and it comes out April 3rd, and if you know of a senior in high school graduating, it is the perfect graduation gift to be giving in April, May, June, um, but as for any girl entering or currently in college, it is the 52 top concerns of college women. It's basically the last decade of my career as I've been mentoring college women wrapped up in this survival guide book. And I am insanely proud of it and hope that it helps hundreds of thousands of college women. Um, but we want to let you know about it. Again, the College Girl Survival Guide, you can find it in any bookstore or online, anywhere you would normally buy books. But anyway, all that to say, let's now join Professor Howard Hendricks in the Griffith Thomas Lecture Series. Satchel Paige posed the question, how old would you be if you didn't know how old you were? Old age is God's recycling program. It's largely a matter of your mind. It's not your age, it's your attitude. You're only as old as your attitude, not your artery. One can be elderly at age 45. One can be young at age 90. The thermostat of true aging is set by your mind, by a serenity of spirit, by a continuous growth, and by purposeful activity. My wife and I lost one of our choice friends a few years ago, Mrs. Simpson of Dallas. I have never forgotten that individual the last time I met her alive on the planet was at a Christian Christmas party. Have you ever been to one of those? Avoid them like the plague. Everyone's sitting around on a crate of eggs trying to appear pious. She walked in the door, spotted me, and said, Well, Hendricks, what are the five best books you've read recently? Which has a way of changing the dynamics of a group. And then she said, well, let's not sit here and bore each other with each other. Let's get into a discussion. And if we can't find anything to discuss, let's get into an argument. <laughs> the 
Last time she went to the Holy Land, she was 84 years of age, and she went there with a group of NFL football players. <laughs> she was as nimble as a mountain goat, and I remember her at the top of a tell yelling, Come on, men, get with it! She died at her daughter's home here in Dallas. She called me and said, Howie, Mother went home to be with the Savior last night. I said, well, let me come over. She placed in my hand a piece of paper and explained, last night, before my mother retired, she sat down at her desk and wrote out her goals for the next ten years. Mrs. Simpson modeled for me that old age is, or should be, an expectation, not an escape. Senescence, not senility. Senescence is normal, senility is not. Senescence needs to be embraced, senility needs to be avoided. She taught me that old age is inward development, not merely outward deterioration. That it's a process of growing up, finally, not growing old. We need to keep in mind there are three easily differentiated ages of the elderly, though individually they may be widely disparate. There's, first of all, chronological age, the measurement of age by time standards. There's, secondly, physiological age, reflected in one's bodily functions and general physical condition. And thirdly, there is psychological age, which is gauged by the way one feels and acts or reacts to people and circumstances. Therefore, the same person can have three different ages. Old age does not begin at a particular time, such as 65. We age minute by minute, not year by year. A 100-year-old woman was asked what she had made of her life. And she replied, I can't tell yet. I'm still making it. The only option confronting us is you either master the aging process or I guarantee you it will master you. We need, therefore, to determine what does the Bible say about aging. And if we do, we may discover we are light years removed from the scripture, though poured into the mold of our society. The biblical perspective. As believers, we have a radically different heritage. The scriptures, old age is consistently a gift, a blessing from God to be valued and honored by the whole Christian community. The Bible is always a refreshing return to reality. It tells things as they really are. Failures are as faithfully reported as successes. God never pictures the road to heaven as primrose strewn. 
especially in its portrayal of old age. The Holy Spirit consistently presents a vast contrast between those who lived with God and those who lived without him. The biblical key to old age, be realistic and be optimistic. The late Leonard Bernstein, speaking of the current culture, observed, half of the people are drowned and the other half are swimming in the wrong direction. I want to need some yeasty scriptures into your thinking, each of which is a boxcar of truth with profound implications. Job 42, verses 12 and 17, the Lord blessed the latter part of Job's life more than the first. And so he died old and full of years. Few men have suffered as Job did, but through his, it all, his steady gaze was fixed on his creator, not knowing why, but very sure of who was masterminding his life. God preserved 42 chapters of his story to tell us not only about suffering, but also about God's sustaining grace. Proverbs 9 and verse 11, For through me your days will be many, and years will be added to your life. These words of promise follow the oft-quoted, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. It's the divine formula for sustained final movement to the lifelong fulfillment. Isaiah 46 and verse 4, Even to your old age and gray hairs, I am he, I am he who will sustain you. I have made you, and I will carry you. I will sustain you, and I will rescue you. From the eloquence of Isaiah comes a warranty clause, the sweetest words to an old person's ear. In spite of harsh calamities, here is light at the end of the human tunnel. The divine resource squad is waiting for the believer. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 through 18. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes, not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Years may wrinkle the skin, but giving up hope and wonderment wrinkles the soul. Paul's confidence under the harshest circumstances tell you and me that HMOs aside, we have an unflappable, unseen, inside track to renewal. Years may erode the body and will, but the trusting soul is impregnable. 
2 Corinthians 5 and verse 1. Now we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built with human hands. This truth is the believer's ultimate winning hand in the grim game of life and death. Sickness, disappointment, tragedy, certainly. But God assures us that his grace is sufficient through the physical death process and his provision is an incorruptible life. Clearly, the authors of Scripture felt the cold draft of death approaching and sought to fill in the unknown blanks that terrify us. Now, with that brief biblical backdrop, Focus with me on three passages from the Psalms which whisper consolation for elderly people. The 71st Psalm is a prayer for old age. The supplicant is apparently elderly and in exceptional trouble which shows no sign of abating. Notice there's no prayer to avoid these difficulties, no request for eternal youth. The psalmist prays only for Yahweh's saving presence through his time of trial. Obvious he is failing, but in sharp contrast to his lament in verse 9, do not cast me away when I'm old, do not forsake me when my strength is gone, God reminds him that he is faithful and he never changes. Psalm 78 is a sermon from history. Our myopic generation suffers from a distortion of strategic neglect. We're plagued by historical amnesia. One of the things we learn from history is that we do not learn from history. We lack a three-generational posture, and perhaps nothing is needed more in an existential society. Most people can't spell the word, much less define it, but they're shot through with it. They simply live saturated with Epicureanism updated to the 21st century. The ancients cried a man can do nothing better than to eat and drink and to find satisfaction in his work. Ecclesiastes 2.24 Our modern sophistication declares the past is graveyard. Ignore it. The future is holocaust. Avoid it. There is no payoff for discipleship. There is no destination for pilgrimage. Get God the quick way by instant charisma. Asaph, the wise man of Psalm 78, recommends this counsel. We will not hide them from their children. We will tell the next generation the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord, his power, and the wonders he has done. Why? So the next generation would know them, even the children yet to be born, and they in turn would tell their children. Christianity can and often does die in the second generation if we ignore this wisdom. 
there is no room for parental or grandparental neutrality. The heart of Psalm 78 uncovers a threefold cord of faith involving first, personal trust, second, informed thinking, and third, an obedient will. Verses 7 and 8 provide both a positive and a negative expression that they would put their trust in God and not forget his deeds, but would keep his commands. They would not be like their forefathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation whose hearts were not loyal to God, whose spirits were not faithful to him. My close friend Ray Stedman loved to tell the story of a little boy who came home from Sunday school and reported that Jesus' grandmother had taught his class that day. And he was asked, what made you think it was Jesus' grandmother? Well, all she did was show us pictures of Jesus and tell us stories about him. <laughs> Psalm 78 mandates that we move in on our problems with advice that leans on the God we personally have proven to be there that we learn to let the Holy Spirit shine his patience and joy and peace when our family watches us wade through the mires of illness and suffering. The prayer for old age, Psalm 71, and the sermon from history, Psalm 78, are completed by a song for the Sabbath, Psalm 92. Designed by God to be a day of rest and worship, the Sabbath is a time to recoup strength and energy in all our physical, emotional, and spiritual being. In his tender mercies, he gave to mankind not a burden, but a blessing, something to be enjoyed, not endured, a delight, not a drag. Mark the contrast. The people of the world are perishable. The people of God are permanent. The senseless man does not know. Fools do not understand that though the wicked spring up like grass and all evildoers flourish, they will be forever destroyed. The righteous, by contrast, will flourish like a palm tree. They will grow like a cedar of Lebanon planted in the house of the Lord. They will flourish in the courts of our God. They will bear fruit in old age. They will stay fresh and green, proclaiming, The Lord is upright. He is my rock, and there is no wickedness in him. Godlier to be characterized by endless vigor. This passage distinguishes between the greenness of perpetual youth and the freshness of purposeful aging, namely wisdom, the skill of living well. Physically, one may deteriorate. This is inevitable. But spiritually, our seasoned maturity should always be developing. This psalm begins. It's good to praise the God, to praise the Lord, and make music to your name, O Most High. Luther translated the word good as precious. The thought is that some inter-improvement or restoration occurs with worshipful praise. Have you ever been deeply discouraged and deliberately decided to praise God? 
an amazing transformation that takes place. Because praises with our lips leads to praises with our lives. He's true rejuvenation for the tired, world-weary senior saint. And furthermore, we do not need to die on the vine. They will still bear fruit in old age. They will stay fresh and green. Verse 18. Deuteronomy 34.7 underscores this promise. Moses was 120 years old when he died, yet his eyes were not weak, nor his strength gone. Isaiah 40 in verse 31 reiterates the truth. Those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not faint. These three psalms teach us God is faithful. Psalm 71, we are responsible, Psalm 78, and all of life can be fruitful, Psalm 92. What does old age look like in the flesh? Well, snatches from biblical biographies illustrate healthy, positive aging. After all, the most powerful incentive to live a godly life is to see that life live. Focus your lens on Simeon. Luke 2, 25 to 35, highlights three characteristics. He's righteous before God. He's devout before others. He's controlled by the Holy Spirit. Here's a portrait of a godly man full of years whom the Lord remembered. He exits his earthly pilgrimage in a blaze of glory. No regrets, no second guessing. He's a satisfied senior, awake, fully alive, and available to God despite his advancing years. Anna steps forth in verses 36 to 38. Anna was a woman who chose a lifetime of service to God over remarriage, an action that was highly regarded in the first century religious community. Her cup overflowed early, with heartache and grief. But she did not become bitter. She became better. She did not drop out. She became more involved in the Lord's work. She learned that the Father never causes his children needless tears. Anna teaches us that senior adulthood, even widowhood, can be lived out fruitfully, graciously, vigorously. She never retired. She prayed, fasted, and remained in the temple. The climax of her life is in verse 38, where she focuses on praising God and spreading the news about the child Jesus. What a perfect pattern to follow. She coaches us like a drill master that no matter how old we are, we can concentrate on Christ and be more concerned with accomplishing his purposes and plans than comparing ourselves with younger people. Her life simply answers the question, Lord, what do you want me to do with what you have given to me, even with all my limitations? But there's a warning. Not all of God's servants were unselfish and productive. Noah got drunk 
and did apparently nothing for the last 350 years of his life. Eli failed both as a father and as a prophet, dying fat, old, and inactive. Solomon left a thousand widows, a divided kingdom, and a nation generally glad to have seen him gone. Even Asa, good king most of his life, regressed to look for guidance from other kings and so-called wise men instead of God in his final years. Of the approximately 100 individuals of whom we have sufficient biblical data to determine only one-third finished well. And of those who failed, the majority of them failed in the last half of their life. For everyone the outward man perishes, but the inward man knows no limits with proper care. Some of us need to reflect on the refreshing letter written by an anonymous friar in Nebraska late in life. If I had my life to live over again, I'd make more mistakes next time. I'd relax, I'd limber up, I'd be sillier than I have been this trip. I know of very few things I would take seriously. I'd take more trips, I'd be crazier. I'd climb more mountains, swim more rivers, and watch more sunsets. I'd do more walking and looking. I'd eat more ice cream and less beans. <laughs> I'd have more actual troubles and fewer imaginary ones. You see, I'm one of those people who lives life prophylactically and sensibly, hour after hour, day after day. Oh, I've had my moments, and if I had to do it over again, I'd have more of them. In fact, I'd like to have nothing else, just moments one after another, instead of living as many years ahead each day. I've been one of those people who never goes anywhere without a thermometer, a hot water bottle, a gargle, a raincoat, aspirin, and a parachute. If I had to do it over again, I'd go places, do things, and travel lighter than I have. If I had my life to live over, I'd start barefooted earlier in the spring and stay that way later in the fall. I'd play hooky more. I wouldn't make such good grades except by accident. I'd ride on more merry-go-rounds. I'd pick more daisies. Here is a man who grasps the delicate balance of not taking himself too seriously because he had learned over the years to take God most seriously. Eternity keeps life even to the end in perspective. Dad, as we talked about who you wanted to have conversations with throughout the series, the first person that came to your mind was Jean <laughs> Hendricks. Uh, a dear friend of your mom's and mine, uh, she turned 91 this uh, January. Wow. 
and she is a remarkable individual, sharp as a tack. Um, I don't think I'm as sharp at 61 as she is at 91. <laughs> remarkable woman. But uh, first of all, just to thank her for letting us repurpose these messages. Mm-hmm. And then to get the uh, the woman, the wife, the, the insight that she has on what her husband is uh, is teaching us in these series. I fell down a Jean Hendricks rabbit hole online as I was researching, looking for some things about her, wanting to find titles of the books that she's authored and co-authored. There is one interview that was just last year, spring of 2017, where she talks about um, her marriage with Prof, early years, later years, grieving Prof, how she continues to go on as a widow. It challenged me in my four years of marriage. It made me cry. Of course, I'm like the most emotional person on the planet now after having a baby. Um, (laughs) It's remarkable. I'll put it in the show notes online with this episode. But there are also some video interviews that I watched of her. I mean, she is phenomenal. I read one of her books, Women of Honor, years and years ago. Mom gave me the book. Gosh, I was probably in college. Um, that book had a profound impact on me. And then, again, just reading and watching these different things that um, she's done really just in the last five years to be 91 years old. <laughs> she's remarkable. She's and, knocking it out of the park. Yeah, yeah. and I just – I watched going, if I if that can be my target, you know, if I can be Gene Hendricks at 91 years old, I'll have done it. <laughs> now, now, I didn't bring this up in our conversation with Gene, but uh, she had uh, – um, major hip surgery and some complications with that. And I asked her one time, I said, how's your pain? And he goes, oh, I take a Tylenol once in a while. (laughs) (laughs) She's got that strong German constitution. But uh, a lovely woman, loves the Lord, tough as can be and tender as can be. So uh, join in our conversation with Gene Hendricks. We're excited on the broadcast today to have Jean Hendricks, the wife of Howard G. Hendricks. Jean grew up in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. She came to Dallas when she and Howard Hendricks were married as uh, students. Uh, She attended Wheaton College along with SMU, where she had a degree in journalism. They have four grown children, two boys, two girls, uh, five married granddaughters, and four great-grandchildren. She's authored or co-authored a number of books on marriage and motherhood. Uh, Even though her husband is with the Lord now, uh, some 65 years of marriage, it would be 71 years this year. She continues to mentor seminary wives, to keep a very busy schedule with her church, fellowship groups, leading a women's uh, Bible study at her church. It's a delight to have Jean on the broadcast today. First of all, let me just say thanks for letting in context use these uh, broadcasts that Prof did 1999. It's a long time ago. Mm-hmm. Hard to but, believe. But uh, I'm very, very honored that you would ask me, Michael, really am. Mm-hmm. Well, I remember listening to those lectures. Um, these were originally the Griffith Thomas Lecture Series, and those are four lectures given annually at seminary. It was quite an honor for the Prof to be invited to, to present those. Yes, it was. And, and he, he never really saw himself... As a seminary professor, he just wanted to get out and make disciples, and and uh, he was very honored to be asked because that was quite an honor to uh, to be ex- invited for that. Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk first of all about the two of you. You met. What year did y'all meet? Well, we met way way back when I was still in high school. I we, we were I was a teenager, and he was just going off to college. 
um, we were friends for five years before we ever got married. Both of us had had, uh, shall I say, negative experiences with the opposite sex, and um, we were just friends, that's all. And I told him early on, you know, I was not planning to get married, and um, I did not know at that point that he had the same idea, except that he said then, well, I had the same idea, but uh, maybe uh, we ought to pray about this. Uh, it might be more efficient if we work together. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like the problem. <laughs> well, but I seriously, I began to pray very, very hard that the Lord would extract me from it because I felt that I owed it to God not to get married since we had, the Lord and I had decided, you know. <laughs> right. So um, anyway, it took us five years, and uh, that that's good because we had... When we did get married, we had no premarital counseling. We had no mentoring of any sort, uh, but we did have this friendship, which I now look back on and realize what a great preparation that was. Interesting. June fourteenth, nineteen forty-seven. You walked the aisle. That's right. My daddy took me down, and and my dad was so happy that he could. Uh, have a son-in-law at Dallas Theological Seminary because he was a fairly new believer and he had all kinds of questions and it was a beautiful relationship. It was he was like the son that my father never had. Now he was twenty-three. You were twenty. That's exactly right. Twenty years of age, no resources, no pre-marriage counseling, no, no. one holding your hands, telling you what to expect. No. So, hard to hard to believe, Jean. Well, I came from the big city of Philadelphia. I was a working woman at that point, and suddenly I'm out on what they called the frontier down in Texas, where uh, not only was I in Texas, but I was on a campus living in seminary uh, housing. So it was it was a major, major shift for me. When, when you all got married, what was the time frame leaving Philly to go to Dallas? Well, we were married in June. We went on a honeymoon, but he had a summer pastorate in Wichita, Kansas. So we went to the the summer pastorate, um, during which, of course, I learned a lot about him because he told me on the way over there, now, uh, I'll be preaching every week, but, you know, we, we do have a summer school for the children, and you will be running that. <laughs> well, thank you very much. <laughs> so I learned by doing. Of course, I had taught Sunday school, and that's about it. And you're 20. And I was 20 years old, yeah. Fast forward with me. Uh, you and Prof are now married 10 years. What changed, um, and what were some constants? Well, if I could put a title on it, Michael, I would call it boot camp. Uh, in those 10 years, I moved six times uh, from one place to another, and I, at the end of those 10 years, I had four children. Uh, and I didn't realize that I was married to a 90-mile-an-hour man. I mean, when we were, and he was in seminary, he was musical, so he sang in a quartet, So it was he, the, which had to sing every morning on a radio broadcast. He'd go sing with the quartet, go to class, go to the library, go to his part-time job, and then in the evening he went downtown to, because some, the, uh, Dallas was segregated, and he loved teaching those dark-skinned brothers of his downtown. Then on the weekends he would get a bus and go over to Fort Worth where he served as the youth pastor for a church there. Um, so 
in the meantime, I was pregnant. <laughs> Goodness. Goodness. You know, interesting, because today we think about a relationship like that, and it would it would not last. Well, we had one thing going for us. First of all, both of us knew that God had brought us together, and we had the scriptures, and we hung on to them. Uh, I mean, that was all that we had, and we truly loved each other. I mean, you know, he was he was a very busy man, but he had no models, and he just thought, you know, he it was no question in my mind that he loved me, um, but he just kept go 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 go, and I was much more a slow poke. And so it was, you know, I admit, now looking back, I had a steep learning curve. Well, and we all do, and we all come from a paradigm. We don't know what it's like to, to marry another person. But part of the reason I want our, our friends to hear a little bit of your story is um, everything has a context. And, yeah. um, you know, my dad, uh, probably not unlike the prof, the depression-minded fear of those men was to stay busy. Exactly, exactly. You have to remember, you know, we're all products of where we came. We were, both of us were born in what they call the Roaring Twenties, but very shortly we moved into the Great Depression. That's where we grew up in the Great Depression. Then World War II, which just put everybody in a frenzy. So that mentality uh, just hung with us. And it made all the difference in some of the decisions that we made. My dad was fond of saying the the reward of work is not the end of work. The reward of work is the work itself. <laughs> I think, yeah, that was common thinking. Yeah, and, and that, that attitude was prevalent. So when he's on a mm-hmm. bus back and forth to Fort Worth, when he's up early singing in a quartet, he's teaching a part-time job, some of that survival. Yes, yes, of course it was. and, and But it brought a lot of com- uh, gave him confidence and 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 he he loved it and i knew that he loved it so when your husband is happy doing what he's doing even if you don't agree with all of it you know you hang in there with him well even during you know the, the precious years i had him as a professor and a mentor and a friend he wasn't happy unless he was traveling that's it that's exactly right he was a go go boy yeah yeah <laughs> well, talk a little bit about you know cuz those who don't know the prof there was something about him, not just his communication skill, not just his training, not just his sense of humor, uh, not, not the, you know, he, he honed communication to be an art form, but there was something different about him when he taught the Scripture. Exactly, because that's what had transformed his life. Remember, he grew up in a home where he was sort of an add-on. His grandmother reared him. Uh, but then he was uh, he told the story of the man who came down the street and took him to Sunday school uh, and then later on uh, but he was he was so active and and he formed this jazz band and they won the uh, the, the prize and he he went downtown to, because Gene Krupa the big one of uh, this um, national champion drummer was downtown Philadelphia and he won that and he got in he when he went in backstage he told the story of how as he walked in the door Gene Krupa was had a syringe and was injecting himself and he knew immediately that's wrong that's wrong and if I'm going to be a, a, a big time drummer I have to do that and that's wrong well very very late that night just to show you how God works he's tr- 
coming quietly up the steps in his house, and his grandmother, who was deaf, always prayed out loud, and he heard her in the back bedroom saying to God, and now God, and now Lord, about Howard, about Howard. <laughs> Mm. And he said at that moment he knew that he had to, to uh, jettison the the band and get out of that, that drumming. Uh then the Lord then you know, the pastor of the church, uh it was such a wise man. He took these kids that had been picked up off the street and uh, and mentored them. He was a uh, he was a big factor in in directing the course of Howard's life. But it was in his senior year in high school that he had the real uh, meeting, uh, confrontation, I guess it was, with the Lord, which he never really could spell out. It was kind of a, I guess, a holy thing that he and God did together. And after that, he was never the same, never. He he knew exactly what he wanted to do. He was all about learning the Bible. And when he landed in the seminary classroom of Dr. Lewis Berry Chafer, he was just overcome, absolutely. He said he would go to his room and fall on his face and say, Lord, I just cannot embrace, I cannot comprehend the magnitude of your grace. And from then on, you know, he was just, he was like a man on a, a mission that uh, never stopped. Let's fast forward. We're going to hear these lectures that the prof gave, and primarily they were facing our last two, three decades. Um, when you think about how you and Prof faced the last few decades, the last part of his life, um, give me some takeaways from, let's say, your 60s, 70s, 80s, maybe some high points, maybe some unique challenges you didn't anticipate. Well, of course, the big challenge uh, I learned early on, and especially after our children were grown, uh, he wanted me to travel with him. Uh, that I mean, he made that very, very clear to me. He did not want to go alone. So, and as you know, he always took students with him when I was not with him, and had always done that. So, uh, I we became a, a a team together. Not that I was always in with him in the spotlight. I didn't desire to do that at all. But I was there with him. Uh, but then the day came when he was diagnosed with. Uh, <clears throat> Long-term, it turned out to be long-term diabetes. Um, we were fortunate enough to be under the care of one of the, the leading national doctors who was uh, studying this at the time, and they put us in a classroom together and said, <clears throat> uh, to me, you have diabetes. In other words, this was a very important thing that I had to know to take care of him. So the, the last part of our life... And that hap that was like the last twenty years of our life. Um, I was taking care of him as a uh, with his diabetes, that is his medication and his uh, food uh, and everything that required uh, to take care of diabetes. So that was a, a biggie. But as time went on, now he had a very very strong constitution. Never got sick when he traveled overseas. Uh, but <clears throat> he did then develop three cancers, three skin cancers, one of which, the second of which, took his right eye out. Um, and he also had heart surgery because of the diabetes, and he had back surgery. So the last part of our life together 
was uh, managing <clears throat> ill health, but he never complained, never complained about anything. He just kept getting up and going. That was his way of life. And I uh, was privileged to be there with him, take care of him. And and uh, he was a uh, delightful patient. I, I'm not a nurse, but I functioned as one. And, and uh, it was a tremendous privilege to take care of a man like that because he loved me. And he was so appreciative, and he never complained, and so it, I learned a lot. Now, you work uh, with seminary wives as we speak, and uh, a lot has changed in um, what would be, what, 71 years you would have been married if Prof was still alive? In, no. Oh, now, yes, yes. We yeah. were married for 65 and a half yeah. years. but <clears throat> It would have been 71 this year, right? That's right. Mm. So when you look at your experience, and and that's also the couples you saw around you during all those years, and then you look at 20 and 30-somethings today, um, they're making decisions that are different from the way your generation, my generation approached things. Help us understand a little bit about, not not just from a what they're doing right and wrong, but what do you see that it's different, the way they're approaching marriage, family, work, ministry? Yes, I think that there is a difference because uh, they are more impacted by the culture in which they live. We had more of a family-oriented, I think, uh, mentality. As I talk to them, I realize they are, of course, every one of them has a, a cell phone, and they're, they're, they bring them with them every time I'm, I see them. They refer to them over and over. They live by those cell phones. Plus the fact that they are uh, impacted by their culture. They are uh, always thinking about partying. Uh, they do what they have to do. Um, they're very smart, but they're not. They're not. They they don't come across as students to me. They come across as people who just do the job. You know, check the box. And then they get to the good part of life, which is uh, is having a good time. Where they go, how they enjoy each other, um, the uh, the what we used to call the frills. Uh, I think that 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 is a it makes a big difference in the questions that they don't ask. Uh, seems to me we ask a lot of questions about life. They don't ask many questions. I sit and with my group and ask them for questions. Um, and they <laughs> take a little while to even come up with any, but they do, they do, they're all about me and how I'm going to feel and what's going to happen to me later and what should I do uh, about, uh, you know, one of them said to me just last week, I just don't understand why we have children. Because she's looking at a situation where all the children she knows, you know, have had a hard time. And so why should I have children? Uh, the difference is that I have always lived, and my husband, with the the Word of God making the decisions for us. And I don't see that now. You know, you, I like the way you package it, uh, more impacted by culture. Um, and then you emphasized rather than family, is it unfair to say more impacted by culture than just the foundations of Scripture? 
Absolutely, I think that's fair. They they know the Bible. They carry the Bible. They, but it, again, it, as I say, it's like um, I say, check the box. But it, it, you know, we're used to these questions, multiple choice questions, where they just it's this, this, or this. There's not a taking of their lives into the Scripture. Uh, I've had to live by the Bible all my life, and it's worked out so well for me, and I want to give it to them. I want to to help them get excited about it and realize that it's alive and it's powerful and it's penetrating. But, uh, and I think that some of them are, some of them do get that, but it's hard for them to realize that God is in charge of my life. Uh, I'm not in charge. I use the phrase horizontal Christianity. Um, mm-hmm. That this seems like right now, and not just picking on age groups of 20s, 30s, whatever, but a lot of Christians are focused on the me, my, I, my life, my vision, my job, my power, my right. my home, my career, my vacation, as opposed to I'm not my own, and I'm here to serve Christ and his people. H- how do you help a younger person or a person with that perspective, Jean, how do you help them reframe that? Well, I realize that in a sense they live in a world of confusion. Uh, and I want to help them understand that they don't have to flounder. Um, their family, their fences are down around them. They, many of them have do not have a, an intact family. Um, they do not have a, a really great education because they have very little history. Um, they don't even care about the government at all. Um, so they they have no fences around them. So the questions become gender roles. What do I do as a wife, as a woman? What do I do when to, you're telling me I'm supposed to respect my husband. He doesn't deserve my respect. I'd like to be a sing. I am a single woman, but I really like to get married. Can't find any men. You know, those are the questions that they're asking. Uh, who can I trust? My objectives are, first of all, that you can take the Bible seriously and that what it tells you, I have lived by it. I know it works. The the book of Proverbs is very basic for my husband and me and has worked so well. And the second chapter just tells us, you know, if you, you desire wisdom, you look after, you search for it, you ask for it, uh, you will get it. It, you can know what to what to do. You don't have to live in a world of confusion, and that the promises are there. That he, if any man lacks wisdom, let him ask. I will never leave you, forsake you. That sort of thing, and it has been helpful to a lot of gals, I think. Okay, let's think about how we encourage uh, people in my category, sixties, seventies, eighties. Your category. Um, what do we miss, Gene? You know, I think a lot of us were pretty busy. You articulated when you were young, married, profs busy. You're at home raising four children. Um, you also had some miscarriages along the oh, way. Oh yes, after that I did. Mm-hmm. You went through a lot of grief and trauma. You, you survived those years. About forty, fifty, life starts changing dramatically. Sixty more so. In the sixties, seventies, eighties, Gene, I don't see anyone really helping us think about. What do we do now? You can travel. You can visit grandkids. You can move to Florida. You can play golf. You can pick up a new hobby. But that doesn't seem very substantial to me. No, I think you're right. And I, I see this in the friends of my children who are that age. 
and the this if I may condense it it's sort of like what's the use there's a self pity there's a myopia that that uh, pervades their life even though they you know they they're pretty upbeat when they talk but uh they uh, they've lost the, the the looking forward when you're young you're always looking forward to what's going to happen it's going to get better it's going to get better well now you've you've reached this 65 70 whatever and it's like um it's getting dark and i don't know exactly what i'm going to do so i try to have a lot of fun um and i realize that there's so much more but it's interior it's not what i'm going to get out there it's what's going to happen to me in here and what have what has gone before all those years before there are consequences to those early decisions and when bad things happen to you at that age, like I think it was Tim Keller who said, but it's not punishment, it's purification. If we could see it that way, if we could realize that prevention just helps us in, in so many ways, prevention prevents the predicaments that come later. But what happens when the lights begin to go out and the journey is getting hard um, and and I've I've got this the, these uh, dogs at my heels, so to speak. The uh, then you find what is real, and what is real is what is in you, not what is out there and what all the other people are saying. It's 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 what you have in your mind and in your heart. But it's never too late to get into God's word that's the you know I, I I know I sound like a broken record but that's where it, that's where it, it it resides in the bible in what God's promises are all about so the the, the self pity that I see you know I, I I being a widow I I I talk to a lot of other widows and I sense discouragement not by what their words are but just in the 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 sound of their voices and i i want to to buoy them up and realize god is still with you he doesn't get he doesn't jettison you just because you're 75 years old uh he takes care of you and there's so much, and we have all these ideas of what older people can do the problem is that a lot of them cannot or will not uh, do those things getting together with other people um, i have to say michael from my own experience one of the things that that i have learned just in recent years is the beauty of solitude just sitting and thinking and enjoying music enjoying uh reading uh, there's so much beauty in the world to learn about that I never knew before. Uh, that's one. But the other thing that is so important is keeping contact with people. That's why the local church is very, very important for the person who's alone uh, or the couple who are out of children and need uh, encouragement. So the... The, I think, from from what I've experienced, especially in the last five years since the Lord took my husband away, um, I realized that number one, He's with me. When I years ago, 
uh, and I, we were in China, and I was asked the question by a Chinese young woman, uh, what, what's the difference between real uh, regular marriage and Christian marriage? And I said, the difference is that in a Christian marriage, there are three, and the rest of the marriages are only two. Mm. Jesus Christ is always there with either two of you. And so when the Lord took one of them away from me, I still have him. And he is uh, he is more than, than you ever could imagine. And what he does is to connect you with other people, other Christians. And because of our... Uh, the, the world that we live in, we have opportunity to make those connections in so many different ways. I am just so grateful for the friends that I have and the the connections of these young people and the neighbors and the just people all around me. And God is saying to me, okay, these are people I'm bringing to you. And it's amazing how he answers prayer. Uh, I, I, I could, it's not a day goes by that he doesn't sort of remind me because of a, a phone call, an email, a, a person that comes to the door or whatever it is, that, that there are people out there and these are the people that he wants me to connect with. So life is not lonely anymore. But um, it's different for each person, and I realize that uh, other people don't think like I think. (laughs) (laughs) I can't remember. It it may well have been Prof, but uh, someone, not original with me, someone told me years ago there are two things that are eternal, God's Word and God's people. And uh, you've you've landed there well in that it's about the relational network we have, and uh, Mm -hmm. it's easy to be lonely. It's easy to get bitter. Um, You and I have both been to assisted living centers where people are really bitter or they're really happy. That's and right. It doesn't mm-hmm. seem to be a, 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 lot, a lot of gray in there. They're either doing very well or they're very discouraged. And, uh, boy, I want to be that Gene Hendricks and Prof Hendricks. I want to be the one who's still pressing on and smiling at the future. Um, but I just don't think we have a lot of models out there, Gene. Well, I that's very true. Agree with you very much. I just sort of think that I, I have to keep a mental pantry so that when the lights go out and I can't even go anywhere or do anything, I've I've still got this uh the word is a lamp to my feet, the light to my path. So I've I've always got a backup. I, I never am left lonely. <laughs> Well, Gene Hendricks, we love you so much and so appreciate your ministry, the influence you've had in Cindy's and my life for these uh, 37 years and counting. Uh, we could never, ever say thank you to the two of you, uh, to your family, to all the influence you've had in our lives and countless others. Well, thank you. And you're part of what it kept us going, you know. <laughs> he, my dear husband lived for his students, uh, and he loved you very, very, very much. When we're young, we have no experience. When we're old, no one wants our experience. America worships youth. It's celebrated in television production. It's celebrated in movie production. Uh, No matter what the awards are, the show, the American Idol, the, the bachelor shows and programs, reality TV, most of our media consumption is written by very young minds. We live in a different culture in a different context that doesn't think very much about aging. Scripture is very different than our culture. In fact, the Scripture runs rich with information about facing old age, 
about respecting those who are older, about maturing as we grow older. Psalm 71 is entitled in most of your Bibles, A Prayer of an Old Man for Deliverance. Uh, Scholars Carl Kyle and Franz Delich, in their multi-volume set, entitled Psalm 71, Prayer of a Gray-Headed Servant of God for Further Divine Aid. I think that that was their attempt at humor in the late 1800s. Nevertheless, this psalm, hymn, psalm, discusses the reality of aging. In fact, I'd break it into four categories. The reality of aging, the richness of aging, the resources of aging, and the rewards of aging. In Psalm 71, verse 1, he writes, In you, O Lord, I have taken refuge. Let me never be ashamed. In your righteousness, deliver me and rescue me. Incline your ear to me and save me. Be to me the rock of habitation to which I may continually come. You have given commandment to save me, for you are my rock and my fortress. Rescue me, O my God, out of the hand of the wicked, out of the grasp of the wrongdoer and ruthless man. For you are my hope, O Lord my God. You are my confidence from my youth. By you I have been sustained. By you I have been sustained from birth. You are he who took me from my mother's womb. My praise is continually of you. Rock, refuge, deliverer, fortress, rescue, hope. All these terms the psalmist used to talk about his relationship with his God. He's getting older. He's getting more mature but life is also getting short and doesn't seem as appealing. So he appeals to God as the one who saves him, his rock, his fortress, his hope, his confidence. In verse 9, he writes, Do not cast me off in the time of old age. Do not forsake me when my strength fails. As we age, our health changes. As we age, we lose strength. We lose vitality we had as a youth. I came across a fantastic entry from John Wesley's journal, dated June 29, 1789. On this day, I enter my 86th year. I now find I grow old. (laughs) Number one, my sight is decayed, so I cannot read small print unless in a strong light. Two, my strength is decayed, so that I walk much slower than I did some years since. Three, my memory of names whether of persons or places, is decayed until I stop a little to recollect them. What I should be afraid of is, if I took thought of tomorrow, my body would weigh down my mind and create stubbornness, the decrease of my understanding or peevishness by the increase of my bodily infirmities. But thou shalt answer me, O Lord my God. Interesting that Wesley, in his 80s, feared the same thing. The psalmist fears the same thing that we all fear. Uh, Many of you wear glasses. There was a day when you didn't have to wear prescription lenses. Many of us have had cataract surgery. Many of us have trifocals and progressives and reading glasses on top of it. Our life changes. Our health changes. The psalmist is complaining, lamenting, but also praying. Again, verse 4, rescue me, 
Uh, granted, his rescue appeal is because he has an enemy after him, but it is a fair application. We'll struggle with finances, with grown children who make bad decisions. We'll struggle with naysayers. We'll struggle with all kinds of issues as we get older. And the reality of aging is that we have to face these, even though it may be lonely, verse 11. God has forsaken him. Pursue and seize him, for there's no one to deliver him, says David's enemy. We get lonely. We lose friends. We bury friends. We move. Transitions occur. The longer we live, the fewer friends we will have. So we have to be deliberate and intentional about pursuing those relationships. The psalmist is also upbeat. He speaks about the richness of aging. Verse 5 again, You are my hope, O Lord my God. You have been my confidence from my youth. By you I have been sustained from my birth. You took me from my mother's womb. My praise is continually of you. It's a bit cumbersome in the Hebrew text, but he's saying, By you I have been sustained. He's not saying, As I look back, I saw you sustain me. He's saying, you're the one who sustained me thus far. As you look back, as I look back, do we realize that it's the Lord who's taken care of us until this very day? Another benefit the psalmist writes is he says, our life may become a marvel to others. Again, verse 7, I have become a marvel to many, for you are my strong refuge. The idea of a marvel is a wonderful thing or an example. It can have a couple of nuances, but one of the best pictures is when you see something and your mouth drops open in awe, what do you do? You cover your hand, you take your hand, you cover your mouth. That's the picture. As the psalmist gets older, he wants people to look at him and go, wow, and cover their mouth as he becomes a marvel because of his faithfulness, even though he's getting older and his resources, his life, his health are changing dramatically. Well, the psalmist continues in verses 17 to 18 to talk about the resources we have as we get older. The psalmist continues in verse 17 and 18 to address resources we have. Oh God, you've taught me from my youth, and I still declare your wondrous deeds. Even when I'm old and gray, oh God, do not forsake me until I declare your strength to this generation, your power to all who are to come. Perhaps this is one of the more encouraging parts of the psalm is to remind us we're not just losing our health and things changing on us, but we have a responsibility to share the resources that we've seen and have with the next generation. Declare your strength to this generation. Do, do you and I share what we know? Hey, when I was 20, when I was 30, when I was 40, we can't play the old saw. When I was your age, that doesn't work. But we sure can say, you know, when I was 40, one of the things I learned, or now that I'm 60, what I wished, or now that I'm 70, I really believe. And to share those real experiences with those around us, it can be a rich encouraging to use the resources God has given us. When you and I have walked a long time with the Savior, we have something to share. When we've seen God be faithful up until this very day, it's part of our job. No, it's part of our privilege to share with others the hope we have, even as we get older, about our future with Him and that they too can have the same hope in Christ.
There's much more in Psalm 71. I commend it to your study. This is Michael Easley in Context. Context is engineered by Chad Cates, produced by Hannah Seymour, and music composed by Tycho, Chad Cates, and Blair Masters. Mm-hmm.